Hello and welcome to another episode of Triassic Park, where today we're tackling Evil Dead 2. The original Evil Dead was hell to shoot due to inexperience. Evil Dead 2 was hell to shoot by design. By the time of the sequel, Raimi had a lot more experience under his belt as a filmmaker and had the funding to bring on a professional effects team. The money to make Evil Dead 2 came from none other than Schlockmeister General Dino De Laurentiis. Dino was in the process of making Maximum Overdrive with Stephen King. King had heard the production was having issues getting funding, and since he was a massive fan of the first Evil Dead, he convinced De Laurentiis to fund the movie. They made the deal with Dino in less than 20 minutes. Dino wanted them to film the movie close by in Wilmington, North Carolina. However, they convinced the studio to let them film in Wadesboro, North Carolina, as so that they could avoid studio interference. This was the exact same town that Spielberg had filmed The Color Purple in the year prior, which led people to expect a lot more money from the production than they were able to give. Raimi's last directorial effort, Crime Wave, was rife with studio interference. They did not have to worry about the studio meddling in this film, as by the time they actually started the picture, it was already in profit. Dino had sold the international and HBO rights to the movie, and by all reports, left the movie alone. Stott Spiegel joined Sam Raimi for the writing duties of Evil Dead 2, and before production even began, they had a hurdle to jump over. Evil Dead 2 was owned by New Line Cinemas, who refused to let them reuse sequences from the first movie. So instead of a straight-up recap, they rewrote the first 15 minutes of the sequel to virtually remake all of the first movie. They took a much more deliberately comedic tone with this movie, owing a lot to the contributions of Three Stooges mega-fan Spiegel, who had made a slapstick horror short about a murderous hamburger helper mitt that helped to inspire the zany hand stuff from this movie. Raimi treated Evil Dead 2 a lot more professionally than the first film, using actual storyboards this time around so he could give the effects crew a better idea. His drawings were far from artistic, and as such, the team had to interpret a lot. They filmed almost entirely inside of the Wadesboro High School Gymnasium. The school itself turned into a headquarters for the entire production. The cafeteria was used to feed the crew, the science lab was given to the effects team to hone their craft, a small classroom was transformed into Campbell's personal gym so he could stay fit, and the gymnasium itself was where they created the iconic cabin, with the rest of the school offering office space for the production team. The summer was extremely hot and was made all the more grueling by the heat coming off of the studio lighting. There's debate over which actor had it worse on set. Ted Raimi insists it was Bruce who had the hardest time, with Bruce suffering pratfalls and caro syrup sprayed on him from every direction. The syrup was an absolute smorgasbord for the flies in the area, which would swarm Campbell at every turn. Campbell was also hoisted up on a device that raised him off the ground and rotated him in the air for the sequence where he flies through the forest as the deadites possess him. The device was controlled by none other than Sam Raimi himself, who delighted in the torture of Bruce whenever he could. Where the effects guys were sitting just off frame, whacking Bruce with branches so that they would really get the full idea of him going through the woods. Campbell even got belted in the face when actor Dan Hicks was off the mark on one of his fake punches and actually hit him. Yet, if one were to ask Bruce who had it worse, he would declare it was Ted. 
Ted Raimi had to get into the full Henrietta bodysuit before filming any of his scenes, a process which would take between three to eight hours. Couple this with the extreme heat and you had one truly exhausted actor. Every day when filming was finished, they would have to pour cups of sweat out of the bodysuit. There are scenes in the movie where you can see the sweat leaking out of poor Henrietta. He needed an oxygen tank and plenty of Gatorade after every take. He once passed out in the suit. Still, they somehow convinced him to get back in the suit again for season 2 of the TV series Ash vs. Evil Dead, where he reprised the role. It may have been hell for the actors, but the effects team had the time of their lives. They compared their time on the film to Jackass, but with special effects guys. Headed by Mark Schostrom, who had done work on Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and Dream Warriors, you can actually see Freddy Gloves in two spots in the movie, which was a nod to the playful back and forth that Wes Craven and Sam Raimi had, with both directors putting sly references to each other's works in their own movies. Sostum brought on the K&B effects team for their first major project. Big names in the effects world like Greg Nicotero, Robert Kurtzman, Howard Berger, and Shannon Shea would get their first big movie with Evil Dead 2. They had a lot of pre-production in LA where they had a good chance to bond and become friends. So by the time they moved out to North Carolina, they were inseparable. All of the effects team were living in the same home, and it's really kind of fondly looked back upon by the crew. For many of them, it represents their carefree youth. They had a lot of work to do, with 105 makeup effects scenes to be performed throughout the movie. In one hilarious behind-the-scenes video, you can see Sam Raimi inspecting makeup effects and instructing them to make it less subtle. As such, the creatures in Evil Dead 2 are truly over the top in their design, with Evil Ed having a giant gaping mouth inspired by the movie Fright Night, who also has a character named Evil Ed. The evil tree puppets towards the end of the film were reportedly the most difficult effects to perfect. Ended the movie by destroying the set with the gallons of blood sequence, which involved some trick photography as they needed to build that part of the set sideways to ensure the blood would spray in the manner they needed it to. The entire set was built slightly askew from the beginning to signify the fragile sanity of Ash Williams. While the effects guys got along great with Sam, Bruce, and Rob Tapper, their initial camera and grip guys did not. Over one weekend of laborious, tedious shooting, Sam Raimi fired nearly a third of the crew, including the director of photography. There were seemingly no issues after they went through the process of replacing everyone they kicked out. Raimi is a very technical director and knew exactly what he wanted. Post-production featured even more effects work with talented stop-motion animators like Larry Larson, Tom Sullivan, Doug Beswick, and Brian Ray, along with a lot of miniatures by names like Jim Belahovic, who had worked on The Thing and Aliens. Jim's miniatures are especially impressive when you realize how seamlessly they match the set itself. Doug Beswick animated Deadite Linda dancing on a miniature set. One of the most impressive effects featured animation done on Bruce Campbell whilst he was on camera. With a static and very patient Bruce, they animated the white streak of hair he gets after he finally sees the evil made flesh. When editing the film in Michigan, editor Kay Davis cut her hand and bled onto the film. This made Raimi incredibly nauseous as he cannot stand the sight of real blood. They had shot the film hoping to get an R rating, 
which is why you get a number of different colored blood, but that did not work, and they had to create an entirely new distribution company called Rosebud Pictures to release the unrated film. For our dinosaur or monster breakdown this week, we're not discussing the creatures, because let's be honest, there's like no real through line with the Deadites. The Kendarian demons do not have a set of rules by which they abide by. They just kind of do whatever the plot wants, which is awesome. Instead, we're going to chat about the true monster of the picture, Sam Raimi. I say this tongue-in-cheek, as it seems Raimi was really only a nightmare to Bruce and Ted. However, nowadays, the behavior definitely straddles the line of acceptability. Raimi knew Henrietta would be a nightmare to accomplish, which is why he put his little brother in the suit, and Raimi would constantly demand people hit Campbell harder and harder, and would just continue to come up with new ways to torture Bruce. Neither Ted nor Bruce have hard feelings about the shoot, and chalk up most of the acceptance of the behavior to their youth. Campbell came from a background of wrestling as a kid, and as such, he was used to doing pratfalls and breaking furniture. Still, no matter your background, it seems being Sam Raimi's friend was not an easy task. And that, my friends, is an overview of the making of Evil Dead 2. Now, let's chat the movie itself with our very special guest, the wonderful, the excellent Lindsay. Hello, Lindsay. Hello! How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm good. Um, again, thank you for providing me with a lovely excuse to rewatch Evil Dead 2. Yes, yes. It doesn't really take much to, to watch Evil Dead 2 uh, again and no. again and again. It's a very uh, infectious movie, to say the least. Yeah, it's never a chore, so thank you for that opportunity. Yeah, no worries. Thank you for coming on. Uh, would you kind of do a brief overview of who you are and, you know, what the what the franchise means to you? Sure. Um, so my name is Lindsay. Uh, I uh, am a writer. I write lots of things. Uh, on the internet, primarily about uh, film, comics, and a little bit of sports, mostly um, on genre film. Um, Evil Dead is so, like, I just love Evil Dead. It's so important to me. I was actually chatting with my friend uh, Aaron today, and the two of us actually watched the Evil Dead movies for the first time together. We marathoned them, um, you know, when we were a little bit younger. And I, so we watched the first one, and we were kind of like, okay, like, I get it. It's fine, and, you know that's a scary movie. I guess it's kind of campy and we didn't really know, you know, it was our first watch. So we didn't really appreciate the cult fandom. And then we watched the second one and we just had this like moment of, oh my God. Yeah, I get it. And we just ever since have just been totally obsessed. We ended up watching army of darkness, like right after we watched the show, we, um, you know, any piece of evil dead media that exists, we're just like excited and lined up, ready to see it. And, talk about it so um I feel so much a just like connection to this like oh I finally get this like campy weird horror thing that I never really knew about when I was much younger and then the other side I always like associate these those first watch moments and it's such a fun time with my friend that the two of us were like let's just check this series out and see what the hype is about and now you know the two of us can't wait to talk about like the best way to make it look like we have chainsaw hands which is just so awesome so yeah amazing that's amazing yeah it's like a it's a very uh you know important franchise i feel like for a lot of people as they kind of get introduced to horror uh evil dead is is a very interesting franchise to go through and to kind of like examine uh you know how you know how it changes and how it evolves and you know how many different uh iterations they are uh because 
it's really weird from a behind the scenes standpoint that like none of the movies are done by the same production company. So like the fact that every time they do a new evil dead movie, they have to come up with a new way to recap the last movie by like just making it over again. Uh, Like even, even army of darkness has like an entirely new way of recapping everything that happened in this movie. And it's just like a very weird movie from a continuity standpoint but you like never care because it's so much fun oh totally it's like that whole sequel remake whatever debate for evil dead 2 and then actual evil dead 2013 like are they continuations are they reboots are they sequels and it's like i don't know man they're just really fun i don't know yeah, truly. It's 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 one of those things where I think uh I think it's it's best to not take these movies too seriously, right? Like the, these are these are not the kind of movies where you really need to go and the continuity is this. Like you kind of, you know, you lose you lose some of the fun if you try to make it all work as a complete story instead of just as an experience. Absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, like, Raimi himself came from, like, a magician background, so, like, I think that just explains everything you need to know. Like, he just was uh, obsessed with being a stage musician as a child, and that pretty much completely tells his reign of filmmaking, especially in these movies, because he's just, like, looking for new excuses to do tricks and to, like, fool the audience and, like, have reasons to uh, torture his friends, basically. <laughs> yeah, which, like, you feel that. It's like... You feel those movies where you can tell that it's a bunch of people that are really good at collaborating together, having a really good time. And I think that's like something that you really sense in a movie like Evil Dead, specifically Evil Dead 2, I think. But Yeah, truly. I think uh, in some of the special features, uh, this is Bruce Campbell's favorite Evil Dead movie. Like he 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 loves this one and it was not easy for him to shoot at all. But, you know, it he said that it kind of felt like a big budget independent movie because right. they, they were really left alone um by the studio which was nice and they actually had money this time so they could like hire and do all these bigger and better things so it was pretty much like the best of both worlds when it comes to just starting out and trying to make like a really good picture is where you had both budget and freedom which very rarely happens especially in horror movies like oh my goodness totally totally i mean nods to dino de Laurentiis, who like I mean, that guy, I have, like, it's one of those things I'm sure you probably already know this or have heard me say it, but, like, we kind of forget about, you know, how tiny Hollywood is and things like that, and that, like, Giada De Laurentiis is Dino De Laurentiis's granddaughter, and it's just so weird that, like, she just, you know, she sometimes talks about film, but I'm like, oh my god, like, your grandfather was, like, the, like, prolific horror producer of, for a generation, like, owns all the Hannibal rights and, like, you know created that entire franchise for all of us and it's so baffling and it's such a cool story specifically with evil dead how dino showed up and was like here's what i want and here's your money and like you know resurrected this tiny indie scary movie and was on the forefront of creating this massive franchise and it's like the guy whose granddaughter makes pasta on the food network and i love that yeah it's so it's it's so crazy it's so crazy especially when you like look if you look from behind the scenes of like almost any franchise from this time period chances are at the very least you know delorentis had something to do with it at one point and and this uh like evil dead is a a crazy franchise because it started out at new line and then it went to uh, Dino De Laurentiis and then it went to Universal so it just like the rights just like hopped to like 
three very big and important like rights holders <laughs> throughout its time period, which is which is very fascinating. Um, I one of, one of my favorite things about this movie is how likable and uh, like how likably unlikable all of the cast that is not Bruce Campbell and the, the main lead are. Yes. Um, because everybody, like Bobby Joe and, you know, all of the cast is just, is, is they somehow straddle the line of being, you know, they're not fun to watch, right? Like, sorry, they're fun to watch, but they would be hell to be around. You know what uh-huh. I mean? Uh, and it's a, it's a very specific tone that is real hard to master, real hard to master. Uh, do you have any like favorite uh, characters from the cast that you really want to talk about? I mean, it's obviously so, like I love Ash. She's one of my favorite characters that's ever existed. So I know that's such a boring answer when it comes to Evil Dead fandom. But Ash Williams is like one of my favorite characters because um, much like what you're saying, even though Ash is like the most likable of the bunch, he really is supposed to be pretty awful. And they lean into that more and more as the films go on and on to the you know, in the show, like, Ash is just, like, the most unlikable, terrible character. And he's almost, like, this fight club entity where the movie was made as, like, a satire about masculinity, and yet dudes, like, look to it as, like, this cool beacon of masculine heroes. I feel like Ash is a lot of ways an embodiment of that type of concept, where he is kind of a parody of himself, and yet people are like, he's such a cool, awesome, dead-eyed killer, and you're like, no, Ash is the worst, like... (laughs) He really right. sucks, and he gets worse as time goes on, and so I just, I love him for that. I think he's just so terrible, and Bruce Campbell, um, I mean, he's turned it into this long-running character that's very much based on Ash, but Bruce Campbell is unbelievable, and, you know, whether it's his bone structure or his acting or both, the way he just emotes his face in such a cartoony, hilarious way works so, so well, so I just, I... Obviously, I love Ash, but I think all the characters are good. I think it's cool that Linda is so memorable, even though she's like, yeah, she's in the movie a lot, but like she's also not in the movies at all. In a right. way. And she's just so memorable and fun. And I love like the way she switches back and forth between herself and a dead eight, which I guess is much more in the first movie than the second. But I think she's really great. And then I also think she's the worst, but I really like the daughter uh, I can't remember her name, but oh, she's just, Annie. Like, so annoying. Yeah. <laughs> Annie, yeah. You're like, damn it, Annie, what do you mean you only read half of the incantation? Why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> I love her outfit, too. Like, I don't, like, her outfit looks just, like, so preppy, and it's, like, so good. It's, oh, like, so it's that, like, stereotypical, like, adventurer outfit, and yeah. it just works so well. I just think it's so funny. I I love how they like set up like Ed is gonna be like a big deal because she like meet as soon as she gets off the plane she like kisses him and like you're like oh they're gonna like have like a big back and forth this character is gonna have like a big big moment because uh, you know there is another like male lead in evil in the first Evil Dead that you think is the guy who's gonna survive and he and it's kind of a surprise that Ash survives in the first Evil Dead uh, but in this one they just get rid of him so like he becomes like <laughs> possessed so quick so quick i was i was so surprised because you know you'd think that because it happens like right after they like crush henrietta's head and the eyeball pops out and bobby joe eats the eye 
So I, so you'd think like, oh, then Bobby Joe is going to be the one who gets possessed, and we have like Deadite Bobby Joe, and it's like, no, 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 <laughs> we're just going to completely flip the script, and then all of a sudden Ed just pops up and like does the like very elaborate, uh, you know, speech about how he's going to kill them all and everything like that, and I, I love that. I well, because I think I think what what's really nice is um you know like like we were talking about how uh, how Ash is really a parody of masculinity. All of the all of the men in this movie are like a parody of like masculinity, right? Because like you got Jake uh, played by Dan Hicks, and like he is not like he is like terrified through half the movie, and then he just becomes like a guy holding a gun trying to get everyone to go save him. And like, he's, he just comes like a hindrance more than anything by the end of the movie. And same with the first movie. Like they, they, they make all of the male characters are kind of, you know, made fun of and, you know, even more an army of darkness too. Right. Cause that's like making fun of, you know, of old timey nights and, and, and all of that where they, they really have a lot of fun, but I think it's smart how, uh, they really just, continually make fun of masculinity and i i it's one of those things that nobody talks about really in terms of these movies because i don't think it's understood um yeah one of my i'm sorry i want to interrupt you go ahead oh no no i was gonna say one of my favorite uh you know tropes in anything is like evil can't corrupt good not because good is great but because good is stupid like i love i love characters that are too stupid to truly be corrupted and that's yeah. like Ash Williams in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. I, again, like, that's kind of why I kind of describe him as, like, the fight club embodiment. Like, he's become this, like, hero. And you're like, well, actually, Ash sucks. <laughs> actually, Ash is, especially in Ash vs. Evil Dead, which I know isn't what we're talking about here today, but in Ash vs. Evil Dead, I mean, he really does become, like, that parody of, like, your, you know, bullish white American dude who just wants to live in Florida and drink his beer and doesn't understand why some people are speaking Spanish and you're like yikes and like (laughs) he's the worst but anyway but but yeah but like again but Campbell like imbibes it with such a likability where it's so funny because like you watch it you go like oh man this character should be everything I hate but like somehow like Bruce Campbell is so charming that it like makes it work as a lead and as like a commentary it's so impressive yeah Ash is nothing without Bruce and Bruce is nothing without Ash a hundred percent a hundred percent they apparently they were briefly considering not even bringing sam raimi back for this movie like they were they were like raimi didn't really want to make it um and i don't know what changed i think i think the idea of doing it more comedic uh really changed uh and brought raimi back um because they had had hell on crime wave like it was an awful shoot but like that shoot was like you know was i think where they really worked with the Coens because, um, you know, Raimi and Bruce uh, was uh, writing with the Coens on Crime Wave. And they were all, like, living together for a time period. And one of the people living in that house was, um, you know, Holly Hunter. And apparently that's who Bobby Joe is kind of a parody of. Like, oh, that's funny. And yeah, and, and they even, apparently there were like conflicting reports as to whether or not they would actually have asked Holly Hunter to be in the movie. But everyone seems to think like, no, she was just about to do like Raising Arizona. There's no way she would have came on. <laughs> <laughs> it just would not have happened. 
but I think I think that maybe that would have like distracted a little bit from from the movie now. Like it wouldn't have distracted back then because she wasn't a name. But uh, I think the fact that most of the cast is is just unknown uh, really kind of help the the movie work and really kind of get you invested uh, in the world. I would say. Yeah, totally. It's much more about like because one thing the movie does. I mean, uh, Ash and I guess they kind of explain later that he's special. But Ash kind of uh, is the only one who gets possessed and actually comes back to being himself. So even though some of them can turn off and look normal, Ash is the only one who kind of goes back and forth between being a deadite and being a human, I think. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure. Yeah, as far as I know. Yeah, and so, like, it's very much his movie. And I agree that, like, by having everyone else be almost forgettable, it's almost like in any slasher franchise or, like, much more Friday the 13th than... Nightmare on Elm Street, but, like, anyone's gonna die at any point, and they're all just, like, expendable, because it's really just about the hero continuing to fight the bad guy, and, like, one thing about Evil Dead, kind of like what you said about talking about the monster, um, one thing about Evil Dead that separates it from the rest of the massive slasher franchise is that there isn't one killer, it's kind of Ash as the focus, as opposed to, like, Jason Voorhees, or Freddy Krueger, or Ghostface. Ash is the icon, of the franchise and um so everyone else kind of becomes a deadite and it's like they have to be kind of expendable and useless because they're you know what i mean like they're oh yeah they're supposed to be forgettable because ash isn't you know the final girl in any sense but ash is the is the face of it like if you were to line up the horror icons it's like killer it's like chucky freddy jason ghostface Ash Williams, like he's the quote good guy. He's not the villain. He's not the slasher, but he's the face right. of the franchise. Right. That's like that does make it a very unique franchise in that regard. Because I can't even. I don't even think there's any other franchise that I could name, at least not in horror, that that has that distinction. I mean, Ellen Ripley, I guess, is the is the yeah. is the next closest one. But the aliens are still always there, right? So yeah. it's one of one of those things. It's not Ellen Ripley fighting a different. Like, well, you find different types of aliens, but they still look like the aliens. You, you know what I mean. But uh, even, like, as much as, like, I mean, we could argue about, and I'm not going to, about whether that counts as, like, a horror franchise. But, like, I almost mean even that, like, just, like, those iconic horror franchises. Like, if you were to buy a horror mug or get, you know, a, a collection of horror toys or something like that, like, there are specific franchises, you, you know, you're expecting to see Chucky and you're expecting to see these characters. And, like, it's always Ash, like... Ash is the face of that quote, whether it's a slasher franchise or just a horror franchise, but like Ash is the face of it. And so it really is all about him. And I think that's what's so cool. And I think that's also why he works as, I don't think he's an anti-hero per se. That's also why he works as like an unlikable protagonist is because he's the, he's in place of the villain. Right. Yeah. No, no, that's that's a very true, very true. It's like a, it's, it's again, it's very unique. And I think what, one of the uniquenesses, uh, is it's also like a, a through line as far as director goes, right? Because like mm-hmm. Ra- Sam Raimi, um, as he grows as a filmmaker, grows along with the franchise. And there's only like three movie entries. And, and he was even involved with the first few episodes of the, the TV show too. So he like set the tone there. And like, uh, it's kind of amazing that Sam Raimi is like, 
just keeps coming back to these things and, and keeps and keeps playing along in these in, in the genre, uh, even though when he's pretty much a, a confessed, uh, not a huge fan of horror genre, right? Like he didn't, <laughs> he's not one of those people who came in to make Evil Dead and be like, ah, I'm the biggest horror nerd ever. I got to put in all these references and do all of these things, right? Uh, there, there are references to, to Wes Craven movies, but that's because him and Wes Craven had like a, a back and forth, uh, which is why in um, in the first Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, you know, she falls, Nancy falls asleep while watching the first Evil Dead, yeah. uh, for example. Like, there's all these like little itty things uh, here and there, which I always find super amusing and, and like, funny. I love that. So like, Nancy falls asleep watching Evil Dead which could be, you know, one of those dream things because we know that, you know, the dreams pass through to reality. And then the mitt, which is probably from, uh, what did we say, part three, I think, shows up in Evil Dead 2. And then also in Friday the 13th, uh, in Jason Goes to Hell. Oh, yeah. Freddy A makes an appearance, dragging him to hell. And also the Necronomicon is in the house. Right, right. And with the dagger, too. Like, the the dagger, the dagger, I think that it's the dagger that kills Jason Voorhees, quote-unquote, kills Jason. And it's... a fun disaster. (laughs) Yeah, it's so fun. Um, You know, never explore that fun to read Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash, the comic series, because it's very dated. The first, the first, the first one is okay. The first one has some okay moments. The sequel is one of the worst pieces of trash I've ever read. So, like, just don't get it. It's a bummer great information because i always look at it like how is this a piece of media that i have not consumed and <laughs> i still don't so. it's very much of its time it's very much of its time we'll just <laughs> that say makes me that. feel better i feel uh. absolved <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah uh but yeah it is a it's a weird it's weird that it kind of does kind of the iconography of these two franchises kind of keep showing up and keep intertwining each other uh even though they don't seem like they would match but you know they they bring them all together in in very fun ways and you know where would you rank this in terms of like sam raimi's filmography like are you a big sam raimi fan or yes i think i can comfortably say it's my favorite of his filmography um i yeah i yeah i think i can comfortably say that i also really like his spider-man movies um, which I want to talk about also, but his more recent stuff, I don't know if it's because I saw Evil Dead later than most people, like, I saw it pretty late in my horror fandom, um, that maybe his newer movies just didn't land for me, so I didn't appreciate that they were an extension of his older movies, but I'm not super excited, like, I didn't get the whole drag me to hell thing, and, like, I'm not super excited about a lot of his newer stuff. Um, but I love his Spider-Man movies, and I yeah, I can comfortably say this is my favorite of the Evil Dead franchise. And so nice. I think that that makes nice. it yeah, nice. like cements it at the top. Yeah, this is you, which ones? This yeah. is put pretty far up there. Pretty far up there. I love Army of Darkness, so yeah. it's one of those things where like I can put either on and have a great time. Uh, I, I also love, you know, uh, I love his Western, uh, The Quick and the Dead. I, I think that's that movie so much fun. Yeah. Uh, but his more recent stuff, yeah, is is hit or miss. Uh, I I attribute it to the fact that uh, once we got Oz the Great and Powerful, he stopped putting the car in his movies. And, you know, mm-hmm. as soon as you remove the classic, uh, you know, his old Delta, 1979 Delta sub shit. I don't know anything about cars, but I know that car by sight. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he stopped putting it in his movies. And, you know, that was the decline of Sam Raimi. 
Yeah, I think, like, um, a big part of what I love about the Evil Dead movies, specifically one and two, and obviously Armored Darkness is amazing, but um, part one, you could tell it was a it was a filmmaker really trying new things and making them work, and they did enough that he got a sequel, and he got to turn those things into a higher-budget, awesome, scary movie where the way he does close-ups of people's faces and the way he does those, like, long tracking shots of, uh, you know, in where the shot, the POV, is as the demon and things like that. Those are the things that he, like, did and was finding himself, and he was doing those by, like, strapping a camera to a bike and, like, you know, doing all these weird, wild things to get these types of cool signature shots. And I think why his new movies don't land as well for me, personally, it's not a judgment for the people that love them, um is that they're too, like, big budget and they look too great that when you see these, like, crappy zoom shots, they look, like, really weird and almost too funny versus, like, really sensing that this was a this was a horror creator taking a camera and driving it or, like, strapping it to a bike and biking through a house and what a cool shot that is. And then when you do that with, like, a steady cam and it's, like, really fancy and well lit, I was like, oh, this isn't as fun to me. Right. No, that's, that's, that's completely fair. I think one of the other things is, you know, he's, he's constantly, he's, he's one of those filmmakers. And, you know, I think Spielberg suffers from this slightly as well. Like I'm not decrying Steven Spielberg. Don't get me wrong. But (laughs) the, the evolution from practical to digital effects um you know that they they saw how much work and you know how how much of a hell it was to shoot practical effects so as soon as cgi came in they saw it as like a godsend right like it was like a oh this is a way to you know to make my movies a lot easier to make and a different way to fool the audience um and it can occasionally kind of takes takes you out where i think uh you know the the proliferation of practical effects especially in this movie um, it just makes it so much more fun to me. And I think some of the elements of, say, Drag Me to Hell that didn't exactly work for me is, you know, CGI shots are just not as fun as, you know, seeing like, I, that movie ends with somebody getting dragged to hell. And, you know, we just talked about Jason Goes to Hell, and that has a funner sequence of someone getting dragged to hell without any CGI. And it's just like, I, I think it's, uh, I think you kind of get more into it. Uh, the realism of the moment. At least I do. I'm mean, again. If you love those movies, that's awesome. Not we're obviously yeah. not trying to decry you at all. Uh, but you know, I I feel like the the practical effects really draw me in and and allow me to enjoy it a little bit more than you know, not having that yeah. and just doing CG. So yeah. But then on the flip side of that, um, and yeah, I totally agree. I think that's why I kind of get lost. Um, Right, something is lost for me in his newer films that like they look too nice and it's more fun when they look gross and terrible. Like I like that Ash's wounds on his face aren't very good. Like they're, <laughs> they're straight lines of floating blood. I'm like, did he get a cut there? Is it dripping? Is it healing? What is happening? And it's so silly and bad, and I love and it just works so well. But then I was, uh, it came across my feed. So again, talking about how I watched. Uh, Evil Dead later. I saw the Spider-Man movies first, and, like, I'm a giant Spider-Man fan. Those Spider-Man movies were, like, everything to me. I know that, like, now we slaughter Spider-Man 3 and, like, make fun of things that happen in 1 and 2, but I was, like, pretty young, and I just, like, Spider-Man was on the big screen, and I loved those movies, and I, you know, thought they were everything to me. And I didn't really appreciate the Raimi horror sensibilities there yet. Right. I just was, like, young and didn't really know and didn't know about Evil Dead really yet. 
And now I was recently looking back at that scene where Doc Ock comes to life oh, in the yeah. hospital. Oh, that yeah. That is pure Evil Dead. And, like, it never occurred to me because I didn't watch those things in that order. And I rewatched that scene that I've seen a million times because I watched that movie a million times. I think it came out when I was in, like, grade eight or nine. And I watched the movie a hundred times and just, like, never noticed that. That scene has every signature, the, like, blowing up of the clothes, like, how it looks like to create, like, the that a demon is approaching. The, like, shot through the smashed glass there's literally a silver chrome chainsaw. Like, I was like, oh my god. And that, man, I wish so hard, it doesn't matter, but I wish so hard that I knew that that was a Raimi thing, that when I watched Spider-Man, I was seeing Ash Williams, you know what I mean? Like, I wish I'd had that, that organic moment, but my god, like, that was a really, really awesome adaptation of his style into something larger budget, I think, which was way more successful than his later scary movies, for me, personally. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I agree. Everything I said does not qualify for those first two Spider-Man movies, because <laughs> I love those movies so much. And funnily enough, one of the best parts of every one of those Spider-Man movies is when they he shoehorns Bruce Campbell in for his cameo, right? Because... these two just work together so well it's just their sensibilities like they love to just pester each other and torture each other and you know they still end up having a great time like you know on on every behind the scenes sequence of of this movie uh you just see them like as soon as somebody puts a camera towards them they're doing bits to each other like they're having fun they're like slapstick and just and and just loving every moment of it and it's uh it's amazing because uh, you know a shoot like a shoot like this movie uh, it was extremely difficult. So I wouldn't I would not have been surprised if they never worked together again. But like even those later Spider-Man movies, they would just hang out and they would you know get his cameo. Uh, you know he would unfortunately have to you know listen to Macho Man have have sex do in the trailer uh, oh, Bruce, in one of the funniest the funniest uh, stories of Bruce Campbell on set ever. Oh my uh, god. <laughs> and for me. Uh, we're like we're talking about Spider-Man. Those two Spider-Man movies were definitely my first exposure to both of these guys, I believe. And we and and my connection to Bruce Campbell still is there on on the three like the early PS2 Spider-Man games based off of the movies. uh, Bruce Campbell would be the one who does all the tutorials. And he would just make fun of you the whole time. Like, he would just be like, you call that slinging a web kid? And he would just, like, constantly, like, just make fun of you the whole time in the video game. And it was, like, my first connection to, like, getting into his style and his sensibilities. And it just weirdly, you know, every time you get into these movies and every time I watch an Evil Dead movie, I'm just all of a sudden I'm back to trying to learn how to crawl up a wall in a video game and having this guy mock me mercilessly. And I'm just like... Bruce has leaned into that likable antagonist so much. Like, A, he was Ash, and then the version of Ash in Ash vs. Evil Dead, and then the characters that he plays in Spider-Man where he's just, like, a total annoyance to Spidey for no reason, and he's just an antagonist for no reason. And uh, he's leaned into that so much and like, the character that he plays. So I've, you know, seen him at Fan Expo at least two times, like, gone to his, like, panels and whatever, and yeah, he leans into that antagonist so much and he's so successful at it. And so I went, I mean, a couple years in a row, the first year that I went and saw him, 
I, like, went and did my photo with him and, like, dressed like Ash and was, like, so excited. And he was so much in character as the antagonist that, like, the photo was, like, not a great experience because <laughs> he was, like, kind of mean. And I was like, oh, I hated that and was, like, so upset and beside myself for the rest of the day. And then the next day I went and got him to sign my photo and he was, like, out of character because he was just signing photos. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, you were doing a bit and I just got to experience Ash in real life and I needed to, like, like... I don't know, because he was such a, like, antagonistic character that it was so stressful. And then he was just like, hey, how's it going? And we had this, like, nice, warm, you know, quick 30-second chat, as you do, um, when you're getting your photo signed. And it was, like, so nice. But then the year after that, I interviewed him. And it was the most nervous I've ever been for an interview in my life. And um, he was just so, he was so intimidating. And I was so nervous. And he still was in character, but not as much. And, like, he's a very, like, he's a presence. You know what I mean? Like, he looks like Elvis. He's got big rings on. He's very tall and broad. And he talks in that, like, booming voice. And it's scary. Like, you ask, I asked him a question that he just answered no to. And I just, like, wanted to, like, dig a hole and crawl into it. <laughs> just was like, okay. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I can imagine. It's it's so funny because, like, um, for doing the research for this, uh, this episode, there were, like, a quite a few uh, year gaps in these documentaries and these behind the scenes footage that I watched, right? So like you could see him at each stage of being interviewed by someone for, for a film and there's like some where he's like more in character than he is and there's others where he's just like, the most recent one is just basically him as Bruce Campbell, the normal human being. And it's so it's so entertaining for him to just like all of a sudden just like be talking about, yeah, and then the grip did this and this is how this happened. And it just, it's, it, it, it's like a weird disconnect because you know you you flip back to two two documentaries ago and he's all full, almost fully in character when he's when he's doing some of his performative stuff totally. and you know and making a lot more jokes uh whereas like he's just flat out relaying information at sometimes but it's still oh, entertaining yeah. which is amazing because oh, so you know was, yeah for this podcast, I got to do a lot of research on on everything that we cover, and I this is one of the best experiences as far as research goes because everything that he touches was entertaining. His, uh, you know, his if chins could kill his biography where I got a whole bunch of this information is amazing. It's super fun, super funny, and like has like a great tone throughout. All these documentaries, even when he's just relaying casual information, he's still got such a good way of delivering just lines and just talking is just i'm never bored when watching uh you know anything that he touches which is again something you cannot say about a lot of filmmakers (laughs) yeah yeah no he's incredible like i again i'm a huge fan and a big part of why i was so nervous was a because he's so intimidated and b intimidating and b because i'm such a huge fan of his which is why i was like nervous for the entire day i was like pacing in circles around my office and was just like it's gonna be fine. You're just, he's gonna be interviewed by a million people that day. He's not even gonna remember you. Just like sit down and just ask him a couple questions. And like, he's scary because he's so iconic and because he's, you know, his character is really intimidating. But yeah, he's so entertaining. He's, he's so great and fun. And like, he plays his character well. And I think sometimes, you know, maybe he takes it too far, but he plays his character in a way that's still uh, likable. He's not this like, parody character that's so bad that he would say something that you're like you could you know you'd be fighting with oh but he was in character like no he's just like kind of a dick he's not horrible and I think that's what he really balances that so well and oh god anyway 
I love him. I love Ash Williams. <laughs> it is such an iconic, iconic character. You know, it's what it's one of these. Uh, you know, it's an interesting movie to talk about because you know, there's so many different branching out points. There's so many specific things you can narrow down and talk about. Um, you know, but before we kind of wrap up and get to the final thoughts, I I just want to have a moment to just talk about how well Campbell does slapstick. Like he's such a talented physical comedian in this, in like Evil Dead Two, that it never ceases to amaze me. Like he's whacking his head with like you know dishes, and he's doing like flips, and just everything that he does is so outlandish and over the top, and he sells it so well. And I'm net. It's every time I watch it, I'm impressed because it's such a physical performance and yeah. it's, you can tell he put a lot of work into it. Um, and you know, he's never, he, he had a stunt double on this set, but the only thing the stunt double did was fall down the stairs. That was the only wow. thing that he did. Um, mainly because of course, Sam Raimi wanted, uh, his face and all the effect sequences, because again, Sam right. Raimi loves to torture Bruce Campbell. <laughs> if you have Bruce Campbell's face, you don't, you don't not show it. Like his well, face is everything. And like. Yeah, it's funny. He was, honestly, he did Jim Carrey before Jim Carrey did Jim Carrey in a lot of ways. Like, all of those things that we associate with the golden age of Jim Carrey of, like, the bits that he did in The Mask where he couldn't control parts of his body and in True, or in Liar Liar when he can't control parts of his body and all the Ace Ventura bits where he can't control parts of his body. Like, so much of that is that Bruce Campbell, I mean, I'm not saying that he took it from Bruce Campbell, but a lot of it is very similar and yeah him whole like the whole bit of him throwing things around is so funny but the part that always gets me is how he really manages to personify his hand right and I love every time i'm impressed by it even though he goes through the whole you know his hand attacking him or whatever the part that always stands out to me is when he's passed out and his hand moves him so he's totally passed out and you see his face lying down to the side and his hand is reaching out in front of him and it's like crawling and pulling him forward like one step at a time with his hand. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah, that it's so impressive. so good. I don't know like how that came together and who conceptualized it and how they executed it, but it's just so simple to have him passed out and his hand is crawling against his will. Like his, you can tell, even if you'd never seen the movie before, if you didn't know anything about it, you know for sure from watching that scene, okay, his hand is possessed and is moving him by itself. And it's just so fun. Like, I just love that. Oh, love yeah. That. Oh, yeah. It's 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 one of the things that, again, it's like there's such a level of acting to that that is impressive. Um, and everything that the hand does when the hand yeah. is cut off that whole sequence, the hand gets cut off and then he puts the, you know, he puts the waste basket on and the first book is farewell to arms, which is the dumbest, but also the oh greatest gag. Uh, <laughs> I love when the hand gets trapped by, uh, you know, by the mouse trap and then gives him the finger. And then it has like these, the sounds, like whoever did the sound effects for the hand is just did a brilliant job because it, it just makes all these like little like, nee, 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 nee. yeah and it's and like it's, a voice yeah and it's so funny and it's so interactive and like everywhere from when he gets like the hand gets possessed and he like breaks the hand and then he cuts off the hand and then that's when he starts like shooting at his hand and then blood comes everywhere and then he starts like doing the dance with like everyone's laughing and he like dances along with the uh, with the lamp as it goes like up and down up and down and it's just like 
uh, very few people can carry a movie on their own for so long and do it so well. And he yeah. just, it's so brilliant. It's so brilliant. So is there, uh, are there any other topics that you want to talk about before we wrap up? I mean, I know we could probably go for another seven hours, but. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, where should I start? Um, no, I was thrilled to talk about, uh, you know, how it came together and all the SFX. I feel like we we got through it and I got to fangirl about Ash Williams, which is always fun to me. And yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Where can we find you on the interwebs? Yeah. So the best place to find me and the things that I do say and write are uh, the best places on Twitter. Um, it's Smash Travis, S-M-A-S-H-T-R-A-V-E-S. Um, and I post links to things I write about. Um, you can find me a lot on CG Magazine. You can find me on What to Watch. You can find me in Grimm Magazine. Um, a few other places, which, uh, like I said, Twitter will be the best place to figure that out. Perfect, perfect. And if you enjoy this podcast, you can rate us five stars on whatever podcasting platform you currently listen on. You can email us at milkshakesandmimosas at gmail.com, or you can join our Patreon, which is Milkshakes and Mimosas on Patreon. All of the sources used for this episode will be in the show notes. Thank you, and have a great day. Goodbye. <laughs>